0: This is a broadcast of Holland United Church of Christ. At Holland UCC, we seek to open the mind and engage the heart. We are a community of justice, peace, and affirmation in Holland, Michigan, where everyone is welcome to the table. Our scripture this morning is the Holy Gospel according to Mark chapter 1. Holy Gospel according to Mark chapter 1, verses 21 to 29. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, he entered the synagogue and taught. They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? At once, his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. For the word of God in Scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. Well, it can be easy in Christian circles to think of Jesus solely as a comforting presence as someone who shows up to make everything better and to create a powerful emotional experience. I remember during college, while participating in campus ministry worship events, where after a particularly powerful evening of worship songs and an engaging speaker, I remember hearing someone say, or maybe even myself say, did you you feel that? Jesus really showed up tonight. Jesus really showed up tonight. If you've been in church circles for any amount of time, perhaps you've heard or uttered such a phrase yourself. And after that, we'd all go away feeling really good about things. The worship band played awesome. We had a good turnout, including some first-timers, and the speaker gave some really engaging yet practical tips on how to follow Jesus and invite others to do so as well. And so my experience at that time was, when Jesus shows up, things go better. They feel better. They are better. And I don't want to discount that kind of experience. We do need to experience the healing, wholeness, and goodness that Jesus can bring to our lives. Absolutely. Yet viewed only from that perspective, we might expect that in the Gospels when Jesus shows up, as he does in our text, to a house of teaching, prayer, and worship, that everyone has a powerful, feel-good experience. Yet that isn't exactly what happens. Is it? There's a strange encounter involving a man possessed with an unclean spirit who is convulsing and shouting at Jesus. That was definitely not in the order of worship. And then Jesus casts out the demon after some more convulsing and shouting. (laughs) Yikes, probably not the kind of meeting that's going to bring those first timers back. They probably didn't even stick around through the closing song. Well, what is going on here, and why does this ancient gathering and what happens there differ so much from many worship services about Jesus today? Well, as usual, it's important for us to look at the wider context here. Jesus is not just walking into a single Sabbath meeting at this synagogue. And so we can't just look at this as a single isolated event. Because if we scale out, we'll see that there's an entire system behind the religious practice and leadership of the day. And one of the important things to note is that the scribes were part of the religious elite of their time. The religious aristocracy, so to speak, of the day. They were the gatekeepers to tradition, to Torah, to God. And remember here that we're still in the very first chapter of Mark uh, the oldest gospel that we have and this is one of the very first public acts of Jesus ministry Ched Myers notes in one sentence Mark moves Jesus from the symbolic margins to the heart of the provincial Jewish social order synagogue in other words sacred space, and Sabbath, sacred time. And the first thing we hear about Jesus' appearance to the synagogue on the Sabbath is in verse 22, which says, They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes. So important things to note, the they that's the synagogue audience, are impressed with his teaching. But perhaps more importantly, they note that he's teaching as one who has authority, not as the scribes. And so in his first appearance, Jesus is disrupting the heart of the social order. Right? He's undercutting the authority of the scribal class. Well, He isn't just going to waltz in, dazzle everyone with his teaching ability while undermining those in charge, not without facing opposition, right? And so, unsurprisingly, opposition appears. And it appears in the form of this man with an unclean spirit. Now, it can be tempting to read this in light of modern medicine and psychology and simply dismiss this as a mental health issue that Jesus resolves. But that reading would put us back on the ground of Jesus showing up to make a difference for us as individuals, which again, while certainly true, is not the whole story. And I think we might miss the heart of what is happening in this episode when we do that. It's worth noting that mention of Jesus having authority, unlike the scribes, is mentioned not just at the outset or the beginning of this story, it's also mentioned at the close. Verse 27 says, They were all amazed and they kept on asking one another, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And so we can observe that this conflict frames this story. Right, And it frames the whole episode here at the synagogue. And this structure in the gospel, I believe, is intentional. And Ched Myers notes that it also suggests that the exorcism has everything to do with the struggle between Jesus and the scribes. The struggle between the authority of Jesus and the scribes. And the flow of action seems to confirm this. As we read it, Jesus has stepped, uh, has penetrated symbolic space, acknowledged, of course, to be the domain of the scribes. And no sooner has he stepped onto their turf, than he experiences stiff opposition. And the demon's challenge to Jesus is kind of a curious phrase in Greek, translated by one scholar as, what do we have in common? And it's an idiom rooted in Hebrew, which can also be rendered, why do you meddle with us? Right? Hey, we've got this thing going here. We've got our religious system. We're in charge. We run the show. Why do you got to come in and mess things up for us? And so in a way, the unclean spirit, right, is voicing the concerns of the scribes. Why do you meddle with us? And so... It communicates this sort of defiance, right, against a hostile intruder. But this hostility, Myers notes, quickly turns to fear as the demon cries out, have you come to destroy us? Have you come to destroy us? Well, who can the us be, right, in this context? It must only be the only group already identified in the conflict theme of the narrative. The scribal class whose social role and authority Jesus is threatening. So that was that was a lot, a little bit dense, so take a breath. Take a breath. I, I think and hope that you can begin to see why it's important for us to look at stories like this in light of their historical context, but also in light of the literary clues that are that are written right into the text of the gospel. Now, this is the first miracle story in the Gospel of Mark, this healing of the man with the unclean spirit being a miracle. And if we attempted to read this in an evangelical feel-good light, we'd say, man, Jesus really showed up. He gave a great teaching, people felt good, they were amazed, and man, there was even a healing. Awesome. Or if we simply demythologize this story, in light of modern medical anthropology so that Jesus cures an episode of epilepsy or a mental disorder, we will miss the socio-literary function of miracle stories. Right? There's more layers to what's happening here than just the thing itself. So often true in the Gospels and in the Scriptures. And either way, either of those readings will miss the heart of what is actually happening. Because in the Gospels, when Jesus is bringing healing, he is so often also a disruptor. A disruptor, someone who highlights the imbalance of power, who highlights social ostracism and oppression, and who seeks to bring justice and right order. So here's the main takeaway As I see it, we cannot read the Gospels and come out with simply a me and Jesus type of faith unless we do serious damage to the integrity and intention of the Gospels themselves. I'll read that again, since it's a key point. We cannot read the Gospels and come out with simply a me and Jesus type of faith unless we do serious damage to the integrity and intention of the Gospels themselves, right? Because when we read it in this individualistic and modern fashion, we paved the way for atrocities to happen in the name of Jesus. Because, you see, it was possible for Germans in 1938 to attend worship, believe in Jesus, and be silent about what was happening in their country. Such a Jesus had nothing to say about nationalism, racism, and violence. And it was also possible for Americans in 2021 to attend worship, believe in Jesus, and support a violent attack on our nation's capital, or at least not denounce it. Because their Jesus had nothing to say about nationalism, racism, and violence. When we, reduce, when we reduce Jesus simply to an antidote to make me as an individual feel better or to make our worship services really pop or to fast-track our church growth strategy, we have silenced him or worse. Because a Jesus who simply brings healing and makes people feel better, that Jesus would never have been executed by the Roman Empire. That Jesus wouldn't have antagonized the religious leadership of the day so much that they conspire with local officials for his arrest. That Jesus would have died of old age, remembered as a kindly old man who used to tell really good stories. But of course, that Jesus never existed. So we are left with a Jesus who was a disruptor every bit as much as he was a healer. We are left with a Jesus who saw oppression and not only named it, but stepped in to disrupt the systems that supported it. We are left with a Jesus who doesn't fit our neat, comfortable, modern categories. Does that mean that Jesus has nothing to do with my own soul or redemption? No. No. Walter Wink put it this way. He said, personal redemption cannot take place apart from the redemption of our social structures. Let me say that again. Personal redemption cannot take place apart from the redemption of our social structures. Right? Our personal healing is bound up with healing the unjust systems and structures around us. Because if my faith is simply about making me feel good while remaining silent about the political and social realities of the day, then that faith has nothing to do with Jesus and it hasn't actually healed me, right? At least not fully. But if my faith is about seeing my neighbor's plight and suffering and the suffering of the person across town or across the world, and working toward their healing, and if my faith calls me to speak out and become myself a disruptor of unjust systems, then I am living the kind of faith Jesus came to inspire. I'm reminded of the blessing written by Sister Ruth Fox. We shared it a few weeks ago, and it seems a fitting way to close the message this morning, it goes like this. May God bless you with discomfort at easy answers, half-truths, and superficial relationships so that you may live deep within your heart. May God bless you with anger at injustice, <laughs> oppression, and exploitation of people so that you may work for justice, freedom, and peace May God bless you with tears to shed for those who suffer pain, rejection, hunger, and war, so that you may reach out your hand to comfort them and turn their pain into joy. And may God bless you with enough foolishness to believe that you can make a difference in this world, so that you can do what others claim cannot be done to bring justice and kindness to all our children and the poor. Amen and namaste.